Pharmaceutical Technology presents the Drug Solutions Podcast, where the editors will chat with industry experts from across the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical supply chain. Join us as experts share insights into your biggest questions, from the technologies to strategies to regulations related to the development and manufacture of drug products. This is the Drug Solutions Podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast. My name is Grant Planner, Associate Editor with Pharmaceutical Technology. And in today's episode, I'll be speaking on the state of the vaccine industry with Jeff Fisher, President and Co-Founder of Longhorn Vaccines and Diagnostics, an innovative molecular tool, assay, and vaccine development company. Without further ado, I'll get to my interview with Jeff. Hello, everyone. This is Grant Planner, Associate Editor with Pharmaceutical Technology. I'm speaking with Jeff Fisher, Co-Founder and President of Longhorn Vaccines and Diagnostics. Jeff, can you tell me a little bit about your history with protein-based vaccines? Um, so we started uh, developing uh, a universal influenza vaccine back in uh, 2006, uh, looking for ways to to build a, a vaccine that would be uh, that, that would have much broader coverage uh, than than the current vaccines for influenza, and potentially would be not not needed to be. Um, reconfigured every year or maybe even given every year. And so we were looking at how we would deliver um, the vaccine and and what it would look like. And so what we realized is that to go after influenza, a a very challenging virus that's constantly mutating, uh, we needed to be able to deliver uh, multiple components, uh, multiple epitopes, multiple antigens to to the host, generate um, antibodies in, in different forms uh, that when they would see the virus, uh, the virus would be attacked from multiple angles. And so uh, the way we went about doing that was we ended up building a composite peptide approach where we could pick uh, the epitopes we want, string them together in unique forms, uh, and then add other components of the immune system, T-cell epitopes uh, and adjuvants to the process uh, to generate a very robust and uh, long-lived uh, uh, immune response, uh, but also being able to to add and, and change out epitopes as we needed. And so what we found was that the body was quite uh, quite good at responding to to foreign uh, uh, targets that it would see, just the way it would if it saw uh, a virus. Uh, and so what we were doing is we were we were providing it a, a thing that protein vaccines do is it allows the body to see it. And, and react very much the way it naturally does. Um, but there are ways to, to with protein uh, vaccines, to, to, to make that body's response even better. And so we found that we could really go about uh, building this universal influenza vaccine uh, optimally by taking the protein approach. And so we've been now working with it since, like I said, since 2016, uh, we have, the vaccine, uh, we filed a pre-IND on it. We're preparing to take it in the clinic, hopefully in the fall. And we believe what we've built is one of the most robust vaccines for influenza that they'll ever go into the clinic. And I think that being able to do that would have been hard in any other way but through a protein vaccine. Now, I, I just, 
as a quick follow-up. So when you say this is going to be one of the strongest influenza vaccines out there, like, because uh, you get your flu shot, you know, every September or so on, are you saying it's going to be like a robust and longer acting than that year basis, or it's going to be a stronger vaccine in that year time frame? So a combination of the two. So uh, our vaccine is targeted to uh, two targets on the hemagglutinin, the, uh, both on the stalk and on the stem. Uh, so you've got the, the standard area that generally vaccines hit up on the, uh, on the stem, and then we also have a conserved region down on the stalk. We then also uh, go after the neuraminidase uh, portion that's also conserved. And then we also go after the, uh, the virus from the, uh, the matrix component, both M1, or M1 M2, and M2E. Uh, we then further add that with a, a T-cell epitope and then adjuvanted. So, so the response that the vaccine is going to be attacking the virus from multiple directions and from areas that are conserved that, uh, that the immune system doesn't naturally see when the virus comes in. Uh, and so what we've found is that all of these targets are neutralizing. And so it really keeps the, the virus under pressure the entire time it's working to replicate uh, and, and grow. So uh, we feel from a breath standpoint uh, that, that this is gonna be the, uh, really the, the most um, comprehensive vaccine to go in. But on top of that, and, and this is kind of what we've seen from some of the adjuvanted vaccines, they also do have that extra durability. And, and I think we look at, at GSK's Shingrix vaccine, which is, you know, really, I think from an infectious disease vaccine, uh, you know, the most uh, effective vaccine we've probably seen in decades. Um, they're out to 10 years now with 95% efficacy. And, and I think that... Uh, that's the type of thing I think with good proteins with the right targets uh, and then the right adjuvants uh, you can achieve. And I think that, that a lot of the other vaccines we're looking at really haven't shown the ability to, to get out to those types of durability and, and breadth. And now I'm, I'm just curious because you're saying we're, we're seeing the GSK approval and you're talking about uh, the vaccine you guys are working on. Why was there a pause in the research on this? If you were talking about it 20 plus years ago, why are we seeing the renewed interest at this point in time? Was there like a certain breakthrough? Was there some sort of the science that needed to develop along the way? Well, I, I think the, the pharmaceutical industry is always looking for the next best thing. And so what we've seen with uh, the approval of GSK's uh, RSV vaccine, as well as the pending approval of, of Pfizer's uh, RSV vaccine, is that the pharmaceutical industry has been working on these for the last six to eight years. These, these vaccines have been the key components of the pipeline for the major, uh, the, the major vaccine companies. I think that they, as, as pharmaceutical companies do, they're always looking for something maybe that's better. And they don't know until they get deep into uh, development or even uh, post-licensure how well they'll work in certain areas. And I think that I think that the industry was a little bit surprised by the lack of durability of the mRNA vaccines. I, I don't think they could have uh, predicted that. And so I think that in the beginning, when we saw that early efficacy on the mRNA vaccines that looked really good, I think there was a rush to now throw everything into the mRNA bucket. Uh, and then th the same thing was true, I think, of the adenovirus-based vaccines. There were some very good things seen at small scale. But then when you took them up to very large uh, populations, 
then you started to see some safety issues that now are, are putting uh, adenovirus-based vaccines into a, a black box. And, and I think that the, the pharmaceutical companies are always going to be looking for the next best way of doing things. And I think that during this time, I think there, there's going to be a pause back and another focus, I think, on protein-based vaccines and adjuvanted protein-based vaccines, because I, I do believe what we're, you know, these, the success of the RSV vaccines is just a really good example of that. Uh, one of the things I think that's really interesting in GSK's announcement on their RSV vaccine is that they speak to the fact that it, it will be a once a year shot based on their current data, but they're still following those patients. And, and in their filings, they say, this may not be a once a year shot. This may be a once every three years, five years. Again, much more similar to like a pneumococcal vaccine. And, and I think from a, a societal uptake standpoint, especially with everything we've gone through over the last three years, uh, the idea of, of longer lasting vaccines is gonna play a big role in, uh, in commercial uptake. Um, and uh, forgive my ignorance on this topic because uh, I'm not super well versed in the vaccines of it all. But I, so growing up, right, uh, you you get like your certain like your shots. Like you don't want to get um, like polio or whatnot. And we see those vaccines, and they're like you get it once when you're a kid, and then you're for the most part you're good. So I understand with like flu and whatnot that it's a continually evolving thing. Is there down the line? especially because we're, we're talking about all these like personalized vaccines and whatnot, do you see a way we can get a vaccine to a point where we don't need it? Like, like even like maybe once every 10 years, something like that? I think that the, that Shingrix is a great example of that. And I think there's a good chance that GSK's RSV vaccine is going to be a great example of that is that if you can, and, and this goes to polio and other things, if you can find the right antigen and you can deliver it, and the body can remember it, and you get a good immune response, then you can, you, you don't need to do it every year. And, and I think that that's really, I, I, I think some of the childhood vaccines are great examples. Uh, for a long time, we've been giving vaccines that, that last for long periods of time. And so some of these newer technologies are demonstrating that maybe they don't. And, and so while they, they might be very good at delivering an initial immune response, uh, if they don't provide durability, it creates an, another challenge. So, so you're exactly right on that. And I think that, uh, that this is where, once again, seeing that, that these, these successes, uh, that the subunit uh, uh, F protein for, uh, for RSV was discovered. And then GSK and, R and, and uh, Pfizer both went after the same one. Uh, Moderna's found a, a, an mRNA sequence of that same uh, antigen and they're going after they got good. What's interesting to the adenovirus phase is that Janssen uh, and Johnson Johnson's Janssen group was going after the same thing, but with an adenovirus-based approach in phase three and backed out of it. That in, in my view and from what I've heard uh, from within the industry is that was because the challenge of, of the safety concerns at scale that what, what 30,000 people is, sounds like a lot of people, but if you're starting to see blood clots at, at half a million, how do you, how does the FDA look at that and say, how do we approve it when we know that that these things come out in, in much larger populations, even if we didn't see it in a phase three? So, uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'm just gonna. This is my thesis. For what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong. Would you 
uh, make the argument that is it wh what is causing it that we are not able to get these long-lasting vaccines that we're seeing for like these diseases, like the long-lasting durable immune response? Is it because diseases are, are these like pandemics that we're facing are so continually evolving and it's such a complex molecule that like it's hard to get that durability? Like there's just too many mutations going on long-term or is it that we're working with the new technologies and like they're not necessarily perfected to the point where we're seeing sustained response or what? I think it's a combination of, I think that some of it is the targets and, and the, to your point that the virus's ability to mutate, um, you know, the, uh, the US government just put out that they're uh, uh, operation next gen, looking for the next uh, vaccine uh, for COVID. Uh, and and they specifically said they're looking for broader, more durable vaccines. We're actually going to submit into that because we have a, a universal COVID universal flu vaccine that we've been working on for the last couple of years. Again, based on the same technology as our universal influenza vaccine, uh, we've been able to demonstrate that it uh, binds to and neutralizes uh, the standard COVID, the, the COVID that we saw prior to the COVID outbreak, as well as SARS-CoV-2. And so what we're able to do is look for places that are more conserved and build the, the peptides in a way uh, that they provide the immune system what they need to see and then adjuvant that to create that to be a long lasting. So if you can go after areas that, that the virus has a hard time mutating away from and then really build up that, that robust response and bring in other components of the immune system as well, that's where you can build that long durable response. And so we're, we feel very, we're very excited. Uh, you know, this, this universal COVID vaccine uh, along with the universal influenza was really kind of on the back burner being a small uh, company. It would be hard to, to put these two large projects together at the same time. Uh, but we, you know, we're very excited about the, the, uh, the federal government putting this kind of money forward for it. And we're certainly going to submit for that and try and work with them for that, but we think that the safety profile of, of protein uh, vaccines is so well understood. They've been around for so long. Uh, you know, billions of them have been given uh, over the last couple of decades. And the same is true of adjuvants. And I think, you know, looking at, at GSK's, uh, their adjuvant, the uh, ASO1, uh, the, the one we're using on our universal influenza vaccine is very similar to GSK's ASO1, but without the re, uh, reactogenicity issues that they have. Uh, and so, but the safety profile on that antigen and similar uh, liposomal uh, adjuvants is so good uh, that, that this is an area where you can move quickly without worrying about finding something when you get into the, the 5,000th patient, the 50,000th patient, the 500,000th patient. And I think that that's another exciting uh, component of this is I think that with all these new technologies about delivering vaccines in different ways, having the immune system react in a different way, it leads to questions of what safety concerns are you gonna find down the line? So taking a step back to, uh, to these protein delivered vaccines that where the safety data is, is so well understood and the FDA has such a great database on it and they have this database worldwide. And you know I think that, uh, you know, I think if Novavax had been able to move quicker and be able to get through the process faster, I think we'd be talking about Novavax uh, as a, a true equal, if not maybe even a superior vaccine 
to the uh, mRNA COVID vaccines we've been receiving. Now, you, um, you mentioned that the uh, universal influenza is in the PIND phase. Do you have a clinical trial? What clinical trial data do you have on that? And can you just like give me the key takeaways that you got from that? So we don't have any, because it's in pre-IND, we don't have any human data on it. So, but we have uh, our, our animal data shows that we get robust uh, immune responses that, that go out to really the, the lifespan of the animals. So that's the beauty of it is that, uh, that the limit that we're able to see on how long the, the vaccine lasts is on how long these, uh, these rodents live. And so that's, that's really exciting. We saw the same thing uh, on, with our universal coronavirus vaccine. We saw out at 180 days, not a decline in antibodies, but the antibodies still going up. And so the ability to, to continue to drive that process, uh, it, it's just, it, it's exciting to see. And it's, it's really, again, being built on the success of these, these previous vaccines uh, that have demonstrated the same thing. So we don't feel like ours is doing that much different. We're just taking what has already been successful and building on it. Um, just taking a 10,000 foot step back, would you say, uh, what would be your bold prediction for the vaccine market 10 years from now? I think it probably depends on where in the vaccine market you're looking. I think that the mRNA vaccines uh, and some of the other technology is going to have a lot of applicability uh, in cancer uh, in some areas that where, where you're not necessarily looking for long-term uh, Durability. You, you, you're you're going and you're you're using um, really that uh, the the direct uh, material from each person's cancer and 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 in the case of Moderna working with Merck, where you're adding it with a drug and you're allowing the vaccine to do part of the work and you're allowing the drug to do the other part of the work. Uh, you know, I think that that there's there's going to be a a real focus there, and I think that the ability to make mRNA vaccines quickly and, and efficiently, I think you're going to see the mRNA vaccines really uh, thrive in that area. Uh, because if, if, if we're making individual vaccines, that, that has to be a quick process. And, and the mRNA uh, process has, has demonstrated itself to be very quick. I think going after flu and, uh, and COVID and others, I think that's where if you ask me in 10 years which vaccines I think are going to uh, be the dominant players in viral infectious diseases, I would say they're going to be the protein vaccines. A big thank you to Jeff for sharing his expertise on the vaccine industry. If you're interested in this topic and would like to learn more, we encourage you to visit our websites at farmtech.com and biofarminternational.com, where you can find various video interviews, in-depth articles, peer-reviewed research, and much, much more. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. to our editors and experts for sharing their insights. Stay tuned for future episodes of the Drug Solutions Podcast with the Pharmaceutical Technology Editors. If you want to stay in touch with the Pharmaceutical Technology team, subscribe to this podcast as well as to our e-newsletters. When you sign up for our newsletters, you will be updated about future episodes of Drug Solutions, receive our magazines, learn about upcoming webinars and hear about episodes of Drug Digest. Thanks to everyone for joining us for this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast.